brothers and sisters, there are at least a, a couple of things to keep in mind when you study the miracles in the Gospels and, and think of their connection to today. One, this was a particular and unique time in the history of salvation. Pre-Pentecost, pre-the missionary expansion of the church, it was when Jesus was walking on the earth in the flesh. So that's a pretty unique time indeed. People can get into trouble pretty quickly with statements like, God is still God, he can do miracles today too. That's true, absolutely. But if you say something like that without further explanation, you're not recognizing, you, you may fail to recognize the uniqueness of the Gospels in redemptive history, the uniqueness of the time when Jesus was here among us in the flesh on the earth. A second thought is to understand and see that these miracles were not ends to themselves. The miracles of Christ were to point people to something about Jesus and something about the kingdom of God. As it's often put, the miracles are signposts of Jesus. The miracles are signposts of the kingdom of God. What about this one? What do we see? This miracle in particular tells us that the work of Jesus Christ calls us to an undivided commitment in our lives. And we're going to unpack that in our time tonight. We're going to unpack and develop that main theme about Jesus' work calling us to an undivided commitment in, in three thoughts, three points that, that build on each other to the end. First, we find that Christ's work meets us in our deepest need. This miracle shows us that Christ's work meets us in our deepest need. And another way to put it is that Christ's work is for the helpless. Christ's work is for people who are in need. The text starts out sometime later. It's actually quite a bit later from chapter 4. Jesus ministered for a while in Galilee. That's the northern region of Israel. That's where Nazareth was. And there were, any, there were a number of events that happened during Jesus' Galilean ministry. Jesus was rejected at Nazareth. He had this extended preaching tour. A number of healings, the demon-possessed man, Peter's mother-in-law, a leper, a paralytic. John doesn't spend much time there, and he moves us pretty quickly out of Galilee, already in chapter 5, into Judea. That's the southern region of Israel. Samaria was in between. The Samaritan woman is chapter 4, just before this, beginning of chapter 4. It was in Jerusalem. That's also that's in, in Judea. It was a feast of the Jews. It was either the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost. Um, those were the three feasts where Jewish males were required to attend and be present in Jerusalem. doesn't matter which one it was or John would have told us. We got this pool called Bethesda. For many years, people used to say, 
They're not so sure if this ever existed. Maybe John made it up or was inaccurate, but in more recent years, archaeological records have confirmed this pool does exist. Uh, I believe the, the Glovers told me this morning, you can, you can go there and be there, and they urged me to visit Israel someday. Um, said you could be at the pool of Bethesda before you, you preach on it and show the pictures. The pool existed. A great number of disabled people used to lie here, we read in verse 3. It's a very, if you, if you, if you let that sink in a little bit and picture it, it's a, it was a very sad scene. A great number makes you think of dozens upon dozens. At least one of the commentaries I read said, Hundreds, blind, lame, paralyzed. You know, before Christianity and, and the spread of the gospel, there were no hospitals. There was uh, virtually no care at all for people like this in the ancient world. They were left to lie in the streets. And then, did you check out verse 4? Did you find that to be an interesting verse as we read? Do you notice something interesting about verse 4? There is no verse 4. goes from 3 to 5. Verse 4 was in the King James Version of the Bible. And because it started in there, we've continued with that same numbering. But later we learned and found more reliable manuscripts that don't have the verse. Here's how it read, though. Even though we don't believe it's inspired, it does add to the picture for us, and it explains verse 7 a little bit, where he talks about the stirring of the water. This is how it read. These disabled people were waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So, you know, that, that gives a little further explanation to why people went into the water. They thought that the first person to touch the water would be healed. Seems kind of unlikely this would actually work. It seems more unlikely that an angel did that, though I suppose it's possible. More likely the stirring came from uh, some surge of water at the pool's source. We don't know exactly how the pool really worked. We know how the people then thought about it. Then we meet this man in the midst of this sad scene who had been an invalid for 38 years. And for 38 years, this poor guy, every single time the water stirred, someone beat him to the pool. He never made it to the water. Jesus comes up to this man and asks, do you want to get well? Now, what kind of a question is that? Lame or paralyzed or whatever for 38 years, what do you think? Very odd question. Why does Jesus ask such an obvious question? But then, you know, when you read the Gospels, you find Jesus asking these very obvious questions more often. And if you think about it, a very good teacher or a good Christian counselor is always asking questions, aren't they? And they usually know the answer to the questions themselves, but they, they ask the questions 
to help you. And, and Jesus is doing that. He does it other places. He does it here. He's pulling out of this man, this poor man, his need. In the answer, the man is admitting his need. I, I want to get better. I need help. He's admitting that he can't do it on his own. He needs someone outside of himself. And so Jesus' question unveils, it makes perfectly plain his total helplessness, his total need, his total inability. And then suddenly Jesus heals him just like that. Get up, pick up your mat, walk. This man was immediately cured. A lot of commentators say that this is an illustration to, you know, talk about miracles being signposts of things. This is a pointer to the sovereignty of God. How we're saved by grace alone. Jesus comes in and out of sheer grace chooses to heal this man. You notice the guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. That becomes clear later. So what's striking is that this man is bringing nothing to the situation. If there's any faith at all, I'm not sure there is. It's hard to figure out. I'm not sure there is any faith at all. But if there is faith, it's only the tiniest of faith, the tiny bit in the fact that he admits his helplessness. He knows he's helpless. You know, that, that goes against, uh, you know, there are, there are modern day faith healers. You've heard of that. You've probably seen it on TV who, who say, if you only believe, you can get better. Well, as we study the miracles, not all of the people Jesus healed believed. They didn't all believe. They not, didn't all display faith. But this man, in a lot of ways, this man at the pool represents all of us in our helplessness and need. We can't do it on our own. God helps us, though we don't deserve it. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says that even our faith is a gift. Even the faith to receive Jesus is a gift of his grace. As a matter of fact, we know that this man was in a lot more trouble than he thought he was. The thing that he wanted for 38 years, making it to the pool, touching the waters, we know that if he had made it to the pool and been healed, that would have only been a temporary fix because, like all of us, he had something much more serious to deal with, an eternal problem, sin. And Jesus came to earth to take care of that problem. He came to people like you and me in desperate need of salvation from sin. Christ coming to earth to go to the cross, it was to take care of that deepest need that helpless sinners like you and me have, a Savior. So we find first that Christ's work meets our deepest needs. Second, we find here that Christ's work creates controversy. 9b says this happened on the Sabbath. Uh-oh. Trouble. And the trouble came from the Jews. 
Did that phrase, the Jews, kind of strike you? John is the only gospel writer who uses the phrase just like that, the Jews. He doesn't mean every Jewish person. From here, and as the gospel goes on, he means the Jewish religious leaders. They had set up all kinds of Sabbath laws beyond God's law. They went around enforcing these man-made laws of their tradition Jesus did not go for that. He did not abide by those laws. He didn't pretend that was okay. And they butted heads. Before we move along, just a little bit of an aside that came to mind on this Sabbath healing. These religious leaders sometimes criticized Jesus' method if they weren't criticizing exactly what he was doing. And, and you know, that's how evil people in the world often go after righteous people. When people can't criticize what's being done, they go after the method, how it was done. Oh, Jesus, we don't have anything wrong with you healing, but it's just that you did it on the Sabbath. Not because of what he did, but because of his method, how he did it on the Sabbath, verse 16, they would persecute him. And you'll still find that today. People both within and outside who would criticize the church or God's people or cause trouble or thwart God's work, if they can't criticize what's been done, they'll pick on how something was done, the way in which it was done how it was carried out. Because in reality, you can always nitpick about the method, how something was done. They don't say anything about his healing, but how he did it, that he chose the Sabbath. There was more controversy created than just the Sabbath nitpicking. A little later in this chapter, 5 verse 18, He was not only breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father. He was making himself equal with God. And and John really highlights that, that Jesus was saying he was God. The religious leaders couldn't deal with that either. So there's controversy around Jesus and his coming and his work that's highlighted in this miracle. In John 1, we read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is the eternal word. He's the eternal logos. When he comes into our time and our place in this world, he creates a storm. He must. When he makes his dwelling among us, it's a big deal. He creates controversy in our worldviews, our outlook on life. He challenges the philosophies of mankind. He challenges our thinking and our ideas and our dreams and our purpose. Jesus creates controversy in our souls. Jesus challenges you and me at the core of our being, our thinking, our lifestyle, our habits. He challenged the lifestyle of that Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And he challenges you and me in how we live and act and And when we meet him, we can't just go on like we were. Jesus creates controversy in our our souls, but he also creates controversy in the culture. The Jews 
ran the Jewish culture and the social and religious stuff. And it burned them up more than anything that someone would dare to take power away from them. I believe we see this type of controversy more and more today that Jesus creates. Don't you think? Jesus creates controversy in our culture. See what happens as Christians try to stick up for what we believe The culture and Christ, they collide, and and we're seeing that more and more in in our day and what a lot of people are rightly calling a post-Christian culture. John says Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. That creates animosity. That's not a mild statement that allows life, your life and mine, to just go on like it always has or the world to just Go on like it always is. So Jesus meets people in their need, but he creates controversy too. Nevertheless, final thought, Christ's work demands a commitment. Christ's work demands an undivided commitment, despite the fact that he creates controversy. And this is really where I believe it comes together and what it comes down to in this miracle and for us. Jesus says in verse 14, later on when he meets the man again, and the the man finds out for the very first time who he is, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Stop sinning. Jesus is really calling this man to a commitment. That's what he's saying. He's saying, turn to me. Believe in me. He's saying, You need something a lot better than that pool. You need me. Drink of me, like he told the Samaritan woman. But this guy doesn't get it. Verse 15, he goes to the Jews. He tells them it was Jesus. He doesn't stick up for Jesus or protect him. He's telling on Jesus. It's almost like, Judas, he's helping incite the Jewish leaders against Jesus. They persecute him. And this is going to pick up steam, obviously, from here on out in the Gospel of John. Though a response is called for, there's no sign of faith here. There's no sign of a response or commitment. This guy... He couldn't give a commitment. He couldn't do it. Some of you have heard of John MacArthur. He's a great preacher of our day. He calls this one of the great acts of ingratitude and obstinate unbelief in the Bible. This man's lack of response. One of the great acts of ingratitude and obstinate unbelief in the Bible. This is so sad because the guy was so close. He was about as close to salvation as you can get, but he didn't make it. It's just like he was so close to that water for all those years, but never able to reach it and touch it and be healed. In the same way, I believe John is saying, the man is so close to the living water, but he doesn't drink. 
Jesus is right there. You know, you think it's sad to imagine a crippled person lying there for 38 years and helpless. This is a whole lot sadder than that, people. So many people seem to be so close and never get there. Even some of our own loved ones, our own neighbors. The Bible says the cross of Jesus Christ is a stumbling block. And the reality is that committing to Jesus isn't an easy road. It involves a change of lifestyle. It involves suffering. It involves the threat of persecution. We're going to have to bear our cross too. This guy couldn't do that. He didn't want to get in trouble. In verse 10, when they, the, the leaders approach him about carrying the mat, he can't take the heat. He can't take the heat. He doesn't stick up for Jesus. He goes back, finds out it's Jesus, turns around and tells on him. He couldn't take the heat. The man never gets to the water. And it was never about that water in the pool, but, but it was about Christ. As that Samaritan woman learned and accepted just in the previous chapter. In fact, in the four full chapters of John up until now, we've only gotten people who have responded to Jesus. Galileans, Samaritans, Judeans, the followers of John the Baptist... But now it's beginning to change. Not this guy. He didn't respond. And not everyone does today. You know, you can say, I'm helpless. I'm in trouble. I've got a, a hole in my life. But, but it's got to go further. You can understand your life isn't all it's cracked up to be and could be, but that's not enough. You need salvation. You need eternal life. You need Jesus and an undivided commitment to him. Without a response, we're in trouble. That's quite a stern warning, really, when he says, Jesus, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Jesus, when he met with Nicodemus at night in John 3, said that without him we stand condemned. So it definitely can be much worse. May it not be found of us that we were so close but never got there. Because it's possible to grow up in a Christian family. It's possible to grow up in the church and be in the church and not respond. It's possible to have Christian parents and grandparents and friends. Like they say, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Close certainly doesn't count. This portion of Scripture is telling us in salvation or belief in Jesus. We need to pray fervently for those who haven't responded or for those who it sure seems to us have not responded. And let's make sure for us at least here tonight, each one of us, let's make sure 
We have responded. Make sure that you have made the commitment. Boys and girls, adults, you need Jesus. Believe in him. Turn to him no matter what the consequences. He's the answer to your every need. Be born again. Have eternal life. Drink from the pool. Drink from the waters. It's worth it. You will never, ever go thirsty. That's the message that we're called to accept and that we have to proclaim to the world. Message of Jesus.